welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Dr. Mason Marks, Assistant Professor of Law at Gonzaga University School of Law and Affiliated Fellow at Yale Law School's Information Society Project. We will discuss his article, Emergent Medical Data, Health Information Inferred by Artificial Intelligence, which will be published in the UC Irvine Law Review. So welcome to the show, Mason. Thank you so much, Brian. I, um, it's great to be here. I really, really want to uh, applaud what you're doing with this podcast because you're one of the few people I'm aware of who puts out really high quality law related content on a regular basis. And it's hard to do that. So I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much, Mason. It's really, I'm, I'm so glad you find it valuable. Um, it's been a real labor of love for me and it's great to read so much excellent scholarship and, and talk to so many wonderful legal scholars around the country and around the world. And I'm especially pleased to have you on the show during this uh, time of coronavirus because uh, your paper is especially timely and and relevant to the kinds of questions that people, I think, are having about information and medical data right now in the moment, as reflected in your uh, recent piece in Slate, which maybe we can talk about in in a bit. Um, but just to get some terminology straight for listeners, I, I wonder if you could you could start by just kind of talking a little bit about what you mean by emergent medical data and how emergent medical data is sort of different from what we would think of as traditional medical data. Yeah, I think that's a great place to start. So uh, I think of emergent medical data as health information that's inferred by artificial intelligence from relatively mundane information that's not related to your health. So this is usually what I call digital traces. These are the electronic remnants of our interactions with technology that are collected by all of the digital devices that surround us every day. You know, we're living in the information age now where we're generating more data than ever before. Some people estimate that we've created more data in the past few years than in all of human history. So it's kind of a staggering amount of data to contemplate. And we literally surround ourselves 24 hours a day by these internet connected devices like our laptops, smartphones, smartwatches, and other wearables, and increasingly these voice enabled digital assistants like Amazon Alexa. So all of these devices are constantly collecting information about us, whether we're walking down the street, sleeping, talking to our friends and family. And that produces these digital traces, these remnants of our behavior. And companies, government agencies are very interested in these digital traces because they are a new raw material, a resource that can be harvested and then transformed into something much more valuable. And that is this uh, emergent medical data that I'm talking about. So it's health information that's inferred by AI from these otherwise relatively mundane data points, these digital traces. And it's different from traditional medical data or TMD, as I call it, which is information that is typically conveyed directly from a person or a, a, a patient receiving medical care to a healthcare provider. And this is the traditional flow of health information that has existed for 
thousands of years. It's very interesting if we go back and look at the Hippocratic Oath that dates back to ancient Greece. There's a line in there about protecting patient privacy. So it's a very, very old idea that whatever information was transferred from a person to a healthcare provider within that, that trusted treatment relationship was to be protected. But now in the information age, the flow of health information has been disrupted. It no longer flows directly from a person to a doctor or a spiritual advisor or a family member. Now there are uh, private tech companies sort of um, uh, inserted within that relationship. And they don't need to uh, go to the traditional route of uh, contacting a hospital or a doctor in order to get patient information, they can now manufacture it themselves from these digital traces that they collect through their devices and online platforms. So to clarify, exactly how then do these private companies go about collecting, or, or maybe the better term is sort of manufacturing or gleaming, I'm not sure exactly how to put it, this emergent medical data, and, and how do they go about using it? So a good example that I like to raise is Facebook and its efforts to predict suicide. So Facebook has had a problem with people live streaming their suicides on the platform uh, by video or posting suicide notes on the platform. And Facebook's very interested in preventing suicide. Obviously, um, you know we can all agree that that is a good goal to strive for. And so Facebook has created artificial intelligence that is able to scan every piece of content that people upload to the site. And it assigns that piece of content a suicide risk score. And if the risk score is high enough, uh, Facebook's content moderators might contact police and send them to a person's home to check on them in what they call a wellness check. And so that's a good example that I like to start with. Um, Facebook is doing this, but it's also being done by healthcare providers in the context of academic medical centers. So uh, there's a doctor, for example, Colin Walsh at Vanderbilt Medical Center who is doing this. And he's doing it by, uh, instead of analyzing what people post on Facebook, he and his team are analyzing uh, medical records. So they'll look at maybe um, tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of medical records. And they'll look at people who actually attempted suicide and the AI, their machine learning or natural language processing, will go in there and um, look for clues. So um, maybe it's something that the doctor said or noted in the chart, or it's something that the patient said or noted in the chart. And the machine learning is able to correlate those little pieces of information. Um, these are sort of like digital traces that are... Uh, contained within the electronic medical record. Instead of being posted on Facebook, they're in the health record. And the machine learning can identify connections between those traces and that person ultimately attempting suicide. So I, I like to think of machine learning as a technology that extends our ability to find correlations within data. So humans, um, our brains are designed to identify patterns in nature. So, you know, probably most people can relate to the experience of walking on a trail 
in nature and maybe seeing a curvy stick on the ground and suddenly feeling a little surge of anxiety, maybe that's a snake. You know, we are designed to, to identify these patterns, but our brains are not designed to analyze really large data sets containing millions of medical records or something like that. So we've invented these technologies like AI and machine learning to recognize these patterns for us. And that's what ha that's what's happening when a hospital or a tech company like Facebook is trying to uh, discover these connections that would be really impossible to discover without uh, those technologies. Well, so in a lot of ways, this sounds really promising. I mean, you know, like suicide prevention. I mean, if we can stop people from killing themselves by using emerging, med emerging medical data, that seems like it would be great. I mean, does it actually work? And, um, and, you know, to what extent is this something that we ought to be happy about private companies pursuing and maybe even encourage them to pursue these kinds of activities? So I think you're right. We can all agree that preventing suicide is really, really important. And I do think this technology is exciting. I'm not opposed to using AI in this way, but I think what, what we really need to focus on is what you said. Does, does it actually work? And the answer is that we don't know. So when doctors like the researchers at Vanderbilt are doing these studies, they are able to improve our ability to predict a suicide attempt. So this is something doctors have been doing for decades. They haven't been using AI, obviously. They've been using pen and paper questionnaires that they would give to a patient and they'd fill it out. And then they would perhaps generate a score that would say, you know, this person is so, uh, it might generate a percentage, like this person is likely to attempt suicide. And that might guide clinical decision-making. But in practice, those pen and paper questionnaires are not very accurate. Oftentimes, they're no more accurate than chance. You could, um, you could ask, is this person going to attempt suicide and flip a coin? And that might be just as accurate as your questionnaire. Now, when the doctors use AI, they are able to increase the accuracy, but it's, it's not as much as you might hope. So it might go up to like 65 or 70% instead of a 50% chance of accurately predicting a suicide attempt. And the problem is that leaves a large percentage of people who are going to be inaccurately characterized, like 30 or 35%, right? And so if you, if you rely on the AI to guide decision-making, what ends up happening is you're going to hospitalize a large percentage of the, this population against their will, uh, maybe force medical treatment upon them. And um, you might be doing so uh, when it's not necessary. And there is some evidence to suggest that if you hospitalize someone or treat them against their will, you might actually paradoxically increase their risk of a suicide attempt. You can imagine it's a very emotionally uh, trying experience to be hospitalized, maybe um, put in a locked facility or a locked room or even restrained or uh, forced to take a medication. And when you release people in those circumstances out from the hospital, if they don't have a strong social support system, access to continued care, that can actually increase their risk of suicide. So I talked a little bit about uh, people who are trying to predict suicide in the medical context. And, and because they're very open about their data and about their outcomes, we know 
their accuracy. But the story is very different for Facebook and other platforms that are doing this. And there are quite a few tech platforms that are predicting suicides, not just Facebook. Uh, but in, in the case of those companies, they're not transparent. They don't reveal their methods to the public. They don't reveal the outcomes. Facebook claims to not even study the outcomes. And so we don't know the accuracy. We have no idea. I would uh, guess that it's far less accurate than the uh, predictions that are being made in the healthcare context. And despite that lack of information, despite the lack of testing for safety and efficacy, Facebook is still sending police to people's homes and they've done it over 3000 times around the world. And we have no idea about what has happened to those individuals. So yes, it, it is a great idea to be looking into this kind of technology, but it has to be done in, in a transparent way. And it has to be studied uh, for safety and effectiveness, just like we study any other uh, intervention like a drug or a medical device. I mean, so it sounds like there's both benefits or potential benefits and costs associated with the use of EMT or emergent medical data in, in this kind of way. And that maybe it's kind of easier to focus on the benefits rather than the costs. And it sounds like maybe even in this context, sort of perhaps an incentive for some of these private companies to maybe overclaim about the effectiveness and the kind of salience of the benefits as opposed to the cost. And, and I was thinking about that in the context of the current COVID-19, like um, kind of public health moment of crisis, as it were. And I understand there's been some discussion of using um, emergent medical data in that context. I wonder if you could sort of because that's so kind of timely and relevant right now, you could talk a little bit about that and you know what people are proposing and why we might have concerns about it. Yeah, there's a lot going on right now regarding proposals to use technology to track the spread of the coronavirus and hopefully uh, stem its uh, spread. And one of those examples that I talked a little bit about in this recent Slate piece is uh, an announcement last Friday by President Trump that Google and uh, it turns out really its sister company, Verily, uh, would be offering an online portal that would allow people to log on to the website and enter in their symptoms and some demographic information. And if, they, uh, if the results of some kind of calculation that's performed on the back end, apparently the website calculates some kind of a score, kind of like the way Facebook calculates a suicide risk score. If the uh, COVID-19 infection score is high enough, then the portal run by Verily will direct the person to one of two testing sites that are currently operating in the Silicon Valley area. And uh, they have to have an appointment. And uh, apparently a person from Verily will call them and confirm it, and they can show up and get testing in this drive-through format. And so far, I believe uh, since the announcement on Sunday, they've tested, uh, so I have the numbers, but I think it's something like, I'll have to double check it. Last time I checked, it was about 20 people, but they anticipate in the coming days testing about 300 people or so. 
And so this is one of the examples in which technology is being used to try and screen people for the infection. But it's a little bit concerning because Google and Verily require a person to log in through a Google account in order to access the screening platform. And apparently Verily has said that this information will not be shared with uh, advertisers and other third parties. However, if you look at the privacy policy of the website, it does say that the information you put into the portal will not be joined or merged with your information from other Google services. So I imagine that means like Gmail and other, uh, other products like Google Docs without your uh, consent. So to me, that suggests that they, that is something that they are considering. And it's not terribly surprising to me because Verily has this very large program called Project Baseline, which is an, an attempt by the company to track, uh, to use all these digital traces that are being collected to track people's behavior 24 hours a day, 365 uh, days of the year. And they actually have a smartwatch that they created just for this program that people wear and it continuously collects data about them. So it's not surprising to me that Verily would at least be considering merging this data with the data from its other services and um, potentially merge it with other information that's being collected by Project Baseline. And that's just one piece of the puzzle. There are many other ways that uh, people are considering using tech to monitor the pandemic. So in Israel, they're using cell phone data to track people's locations and that could potentially be used to infer whether they are, are infected because you would be able to figure out whether a person had been located near someone who uh, was known to have been infected with the virus. And that's something that's actually being considered in the United States. And we can also look to China where there are tech companies and their platforms like uh, WeChat and Alipay, which are smartphone apps that people use for many, many different purposes. It's kind of like a universal smartphone app that accesses uh, things like banking and transportation and many, many different aspects of people's lives. And there's an app uh, on Alipay and WeChat called Health Code. And what it does is it takes all kinds of information and somehow calculates a color-coded QR code for that person so it's green, yellow, or red. And if the code is green, that person can travel freely. They have to show the code to attendants if they're boarding a train, for example. But if the code is yellow or red, then they are effectively quarantined and they won't be able to board the train. And so um, that's something that we don't have quite yet here in the US, but uh, depending on how this pandemic evolves, we could end up with something like that. And the Verily portal could play a role in that. Well, so a, 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 a lot of your paper focuses on how we might think about um, emergent medical data from a regulatory perspective. So to, to provide some context for listeners, I wonder if you might talk about sort of what the regulatory regime for traditional medical data looks like and how it differs from the regulatory regime, if, if there is one, 
I guess, for emergent medical data? That's a great question. So when you go to see a doctor or a nurse practitioner or physician's assistant, there are quite a few safeguards in place to protect your privacy. One of them is HIPAA, the Health Information Portability and Accountability Act, which was signed into law back in 1996 by President Clinton. And so that is the federal law that protects your privacy when you go to see a healthcare provider. And it covers what we call covered entities. These are groups and individuals that are really actors within the traditional healthcare system. So doctors and other, other providers, hospitals, healthcare systems, insurance companies, even pharmacies, they all fall under HIPAA. And more recently, its scope includes even business associates. So um, that could be uh, contractors and attorneys who do business with the hospital. Also, doctors take the Hippocratic Oath that I mentioned earlier. So uh, in that oath, you know, they take a vow to protect patient privacy. And healthcare providers have what we call fiduciary duties that they owe to people that they treat. These are duties of loyalty, duties of care, and duty of confidentiality. Now, none of these protections apply when you provide your health information to an app or a website, or when they infer your health information. So when they mine emergent medical data from your digital traces, you have none of those protections because healthcare company, uh, uh, tech companies are not uh, healthcare providers. They're not doctors. They don't take a Hippocratic oath and they don't owe you these fiduciary duties. And there have been calls recently, uh, primarily from a couple law professors, Jack Balkin at Yale and Jonathan Zittrain at Harvard, have proposed that we impose fiduciary duties onto companies that collect large volumes of data from people. So that is a very interesting idea because if we were to impose similar types of duties onto tech companies, especially when they collect your health information, then that might provide some protection and um, bridge this divide, this disparity between what happens when your health information is collected by a doctor versus when it is collected by a tech company. Mm. Well, I mean, it seems to me that, you know, our sort of traditional or kind of current, I guess, understanding of the kind of data collection that you talk about in the context of emergent medical data is sort of treated by a range of different kind of concepts that kind of place it outside the scope of the kind of data that would be heavily regulated in the way that traditional medical data is. In your article, if, if, if I take it correctly, you sort of propose a series of different kinds of reframing that might suggest how we might think about emergent medical data in a way that brings it into a more kind of regulatory friendly context. And I wonder if you might kind of point to at least a few of those kind of paradigms or frameworks that you think might suggest the need and justification for additional and kind of more kind of forward thinking regulation. I think that's a good idea. I, I This is a such a complex topic that I think it's it's kind of a little bit difficult to wrap your head around. So in the article, I thought it was useful to 
think of different ways of conceptualizing mining for emergent medical data. And the first way that I talk about is as a means of regulatory arbitrage. So mining for emergent medical data allows companies to circumvent all of these protections that I've talked about. Uh, in the past, it wasn't impossible for tech companies to get health information, but because of HIPAA, uh, the information would have to be completely de-identified first, which is, is a, an imperfect safeguard, but at least it does offer some protection. But mining for emergent medical data allows companies to just circumvent those regulations and, uh, like we said, manufacture health data seemingly out of thin air. So it's a way of getting around, getting your hands on this really valuable information, which can be used for a variety of purposes, whether it's advertising or determining uh, insurance premiums or scoring people. You know, there's this new trend for consumer credit scoring and uh, EMD can be used for that purpose. Another way of thinking of it is as a breach of contextual integrity. This is a framework for thinking about privacy that Helen Nissenbaum, a philosopher at Cornell, came up with some years ago. And the idea is that in every sphere of human activity, there are certain norms regarding the flow of information. So I like to think about the difference between being in a, a university of university library versus a comedy club. If you're in a university library, the norm regarding information flow is that there really should be no audible information flow. You should be quiet. But if you're in a comedy club, there are very different social norms regarding information flow. It's perfectly acceptable to be laughing, screaming, and whistling. And so uh, there are similarly norms surrounding other types of communication. Like if you are communicating with your family and friends through email, like Gmail, or through uh, a post on Facebook or private message on Facebook, there are certain expectations that you have. You, you, you expect a private message to be a private message. You expect an email to your uh, family member to be a private message. But in reality, we have tech companies that are analyzing with AI all of those communications all the time. And I think that's coming to light. So, so uh, tech companies are starting to shift the social norms regarding the flow of information. But I think still a lot of people don't really fully understand the extent of that. So I think we still have that norm that um, that information should be private. But when companies take that information, analyze it with AI, and produce emergent medical data, I argue that's a really good example of a breach of contextual integrity. So taking information that is being transmitted in one context, in this case, communicating with other people, but it could be shopping online or taking an Uber or Lyft or something like that. Uh, these are not healthcare contexts, but companies take the information, transform it into health information, even though uh, you are sitting at home or in an Uber or on Amazon's website or something like that. You're not sitting in your doctor's office and yet they're taking the information that was meant to be used for one purpose and using it for a completely different purpose. Uh, another way of thinking about this is as the operation of a medical device. So I like to think of Facebook's suicide prediction platform as a medical device. And that's not really, it, it sounds a little bit strange at first, 
but it's not really that uh, strange of a concept because the Food and Drug Administration is very comfortable with thinking about software as a medical device. And they, they have a term for it, which is software as a medical device or SAMD. And the way the FDA thinks about this SAMD is based on risk. So they think about three different risk categories. And I think the agency would be willing to think about Facebook's platform as a medical device. And 23andMe's website is sort of a good analogy there. Uh, there was no trouble thinking of that as a medical device when it was when it first came out. The problem is that the FDA would think of it as a low-risk medical device, and uh, it doesn't really regulate them, although it reserves the uh, discretion to regulate low-risk medical devices. But I would argue that it's not really low-risk. It's actually intermediate or even in some cases high-risk because Facebook is relying on the predictions that the platform generates to send police, armed police, to people's homes. And so we need to think about the downstream effects of uh, operating this platform. And that's a very foreign concept to the FDA. The FDA has a very outdated concept of risk. They would think about traditional medical devices like a ventilator, like a defibrillator, or a pacemaker malfunctioning and physically injuring a person. So that's kind of how you would traditionally think about medical risk, a malfunction causing physical injury. And so the risks associated with operating an online platform like, like Facebook's is a, kind of a new uh, foreign territory for regulators. And so I'm trying to sort of shift that through this paper. So in your paper, you talk about some kind of existing proposals for the regulation of emergent medical data and its production, but also kind of suggest that you think they're not really adequate or not going far enough. So I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about you know how, how you think we ought to approach the regulation of these kinds of emergent data practices. The General Data Protection Regulation, or GDPR, in the European Union is a good place to start. So in the United States, we regulate privacy in a very sectoral way. So instead of having a universal omnibus privacy law at the federal level, we have privacy laws for individual industries like the financial sector, like the healthcare sector. HIPAA is the privacy law for the healthcare sector. But the European Union is taking a different approach. With the GDPR, they're saying it doesn't matter what sector you're in. It doesn't matter um, whether it's healthcare or finance or whatever. We're going to regulate uh, uh, the protection of data with a single law, the GDPR. And that's really a step in the right direction. And so the GDPR um, has some specific uh, regulations regarding healthcare, but it's not exclusive to healthcare. But there are some issues that I find with the law because it contains a lot of exceptions. There are certain exceptions where a company can collect data without a person's consent if it's used for um, certain purposes, like if it's used to promote the public good or to protect the vital interest of the data subject. 
And so Facebook's suicide prediction platform would likely fall under that uh, exception. And uh, as far as I know, at least the last time I checked, Facebook was not operating the platform in the EU, presumably because of the GDPR and other protections and perhaps just for political reasons. But I think that it could operate its platform in the EU under these exceptions under the GDPR. And it wouldn't even necessarily have to seek the consent of the data subjects. So I do see that as a shortcoming of the GDPR. And there are similar shortcomings in certain U.S. laws like the California Consumer Privacy Act, which is largely modeled after the GDPR. Uh, it, it, it's a step in the right direction. It's certainly a, a landmark piece of legislation in the U.S. It gives certain rights to Californians like the ability to request from a company what kind of data they've collected about you. It allows you to uh, request that your data be deleted, and it allows you to uh, request that they don't sell your data to third parties. But And the, that law had just came online in uh, January, so it's very, very new. But so far, the reports I've read of people requesting what data Facebook has about them has been very, very limited. Facebook it doesn't really seem to be complying with the law uh, as much as we might like them to. And so they, they, uh, it's been questioned whether or not they are really providing all the data they have on you. And so um, imagine that a person who, you know, we, we know that Facebook is collecting suicide information about every person who posts on the site. Uh, that information uh, you would think would be fair game for a data request, but I'm not sure that would be uh, complied with. And another shortcoming is that because there are certain exceptions to the request to have your data deleted, if you made a request to Facebook and asked them to delete these suicide prediction data, uh, they might not be required to comply with that request because of certain exceptions in the law. I believe Facebook has said that they do delete the data at a certain point, so that may not be an issue in this particular case, but it is an example of how we really need to think a little bit more about the laws. And there will be sort of an evolutionary process to these laws, the GDPR and the California law, because we're really in a completely new world. I mean, we're, we're firmly in the information age now and regulators and legislators are really grappling with these issues and trying to figure out what to do with them. There is a bill that was proposed by Amy Klobuchar and Lisa Murkowski. It's called the Protecting Personal Health Information Act. And I thought this was particularly interesting because it actually creates an exception for emergent medical data. They don't call it that, um, but they call it, uh, they say that the, the, the law would not apply to information that is inferred from digital traces like GPS location data. So other than that, the bill is uh, somewhat promising because it aims to fill this gap in regulation between HIPAA and other healthcare context regulations and uh, data collected by wearables and other digital technologies. But it has this exception for emergent medical data. And I find that quite concerning. Well, so Mason, in closing, I mean, I think you make a really compelling case for more or, or maybe some 
regulation of emergent medical data. But I, I, I imagine that pushback from a lot of people in the tech sector and, you know, at least some scholars working in that area as well um, would be that, you know, we run the risk of going too far, right? Like too much regulation might, uh, you know, put a hamper on innovation and might limit some of the benefits that could be associated with expanding our ability to sort of develop emergent medical data, you know, for important things like suicide prevention or fighting COVID-19 or, or whatever. I mean, how would you respond to those kinds of concerns? Do you think those are real at this point in time? Or is, is that something that we should kind of leave for a later day? I think there's a tendency, especially in Silicon Valley and when it comes to technology, to push innovation at all costs and simply for innovation's sake. And I, I think that is a dangerous uh, goal or a dangerous uh, North Star to have you know, innovation at all costs. And my concern is that all of these programs, Facebooks, Verilis, and many others, will be used to generate proprietary intellectual property for the companies. So the public might not be able to reap the benefits of all this technology. And also that some of the technology might actually be dangerous. The, the Facebook suicide example is just one example, but there are many others that we can imagine. So I, I do think we should be pursuing the study of this type of technology, but it really should remain in the research phase right now. Um, we, we shouldn't be rolling it out and using it the way that we are. In fact, there are many companies that are marketing these technologies to school districts. So there are actually hundreds of schools in the United States that use platforms very similar to Facebook's to monitor everything that students are doing. And they're marketed as solutions to mental health problems, substance use disorders, suicide, school violence, like gun gun violence and mass shootings. So uh, it's very easy to pitch your technology as a solution or panacea to these public health crises that our nation is facing. But um, I think that's quite concerning because what happens is uh, we end up with these proprietary black box technologies that are implemented and we don't really know uh, we don't really fully understand the harms. And uh, by the time we do, they're already so integrated into our society that it can be very difficult to uh, reverse that trend. Well, Mason, thanks so much for coming on the show and sharing your research in this kind of fascinating, timely, and concerning area. And uh, I hope that listeners will check out your paper uh, in which you go into a lot of these proposals in much greater detail than we could discuss in the program and that this conversation about EMD continues. Thanks, Brian. I really appreciate it. It was a pleasure. Safety. That stuff in the medicine cabinet. 
Your name on 